This episode is for all of you who have heard yourself say, I'll start tomorrow. By the principle of neuroplasticity, if you have a craving for, mm, let's say, chocolate, and you reinforce that craving by eating the chocolate, that connection is only going to get stronger. So when we say, I'll start tomorrow, tomorrow will be even harder to resist because that connection has been strengthened. This is just a small glimpse into all the wisdom that our interviewed guests provided today, and my promise is there is so much more. You will need to put on your thinking caps, pull out your pen and paper, because we are going deep today. Are you ready for the challenge? Stay tuned. Thank you so much for joining me. I am your host, Lindsay House, registered dietitian, private trainer, accountability coach, author, I have been working with clients for over 13 years, passionately changing the culture of health and fitness. I'm out here smashing scales, helping individuals rewrite the rules to what success looks like in their life. I want to change generational thinking, no more all or nothing mentality, get rid of the diets and believe in the individualized journey. We are stronger than we will ever accept and beautifully made just the way we are. Keep your eyes on your own paper and trust your own path. Thank you for trusting me and letting me be a constant encouragement through your week. Let's get this motivation started. Welcome to your podcast, Direction, Not Perfection. Happy Podcast Friday. Welcome to episode 169, Never Binge Again, with Dr. Glenn Livingston. Glenn is a veteran psychologist and a former CEO of two consulting firms, which provided millions of dollars of research to Fortune 500 clients, many in the food industry. Glenn was disillusioned by what traditional psychology had to offer for overweight and or food-obsessed individuals. Dr. Livingston spent several decades researching the nature of binge eating and overeating via work with his own patients and a self-funded research program with more than 40,000 participants. Most important, however, was his own personal journey out of obesity and food prison to a normal, healthy weight and much more lighthearted relationship with food. If you feel like you've tried to diet and diet with no permanent success, you constantly think about food and or your weight, you feel driven to eat when you're not hungry, you sometimes feel you can't stop eating even though you're full, You sometimes feel guilty or ashamed of what you've eaten. You behave differently with food in private than you do when you're with other people. You feel the need to fast and severely restrict your food to make up for those serious bouts of overeating. This episode is for you, so let's get this interview started. I am thrilled to introduce you today to Dr. Glenn Livingston. He is a psychologist and has worked in the food industry as well as with patients for years and years and also author of Never Binge Again. We have so many fun topics to unveil today. Welcome, Dr. Livingston. Thank you for having me. I hope you'll call me Glenn. Will do. We'll switch over. I I come from a family (laughs) of 17 therapists and when you say Dr. Livingston, too many people turn around. So Glenn, Glenn works better. Perfect. Welcome, Glenn. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. Happy to be here. Uh, I, I feel like there's so many different areas to dive in. Let's just start with when you say food industry, what did you used to do within the food industry? Um, so I never had children because my ex-wife traveled for business and I worked at home. So I had a lot of time on my hands. So in addition to my clinical practice, which was in child and family, not food disorders, um, because I used to have a food disorder myself. 
I, I did consulting for, um, I did advertising consulting for uh, big companies you'd recognize in the food industry. So my claim to fame was I had the ability to conduct observational studies, which would infer what people were thinking and what was making them purchase rather than asking them directly. Because when you, you can't ask people directly, did you choose the American Express Platinum card to make you feel like a you know, highfalutin, high status person? Because there's this thing called social desirability bias. People don't like to think that they make decisions for the reasons that they do. Um, and I, I honestly, I'm fine about having worked with American Express, but a lot of the companies in the food industry, I felt like um, I was on the wrong side of the war. I, I was chasing money back then. And, um, you know, I feel kind of like the Marlboro man at the end of his life where he was repentant and feels like he was on the wrong side of the war. I, I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war back then. But I, I did all these observational studies and um, I worked with kind of people high up in the marketing and marketing research departments and research and development. And we tried to figure out um, what it was about the packaging or the products or uh, the way that they were talked about or the spokes models that would, um, would get people to buy. That's, that's what I did. Okay. Interesting. So we still have a lot to uncover here. Hang on, go back. You mentioned food and that you feel like you are recovered from a food oh, yeah. pass. Go oh, there. Yeah. Okay. Well, that could take the rest of the interview. But, um, <laughs> we got time. <laughs> okay. Okay. So when I was about 17, I figured out that because I'm 6'4 and modestly muscular, that I could eat whatever I wanted to if I worked out for two hours a day. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm talking about, um, you know, a whole pizza or two or several boxes of Pop-Tarts or um, boxes of donuts or muffins, or we didn't call them lattes back then, but that's what they were. I could have a half a dozen of those. And I thought it was great. Quote Doug Graham, I felt like it was a superpower. I didn't think it was a problem. I just was kind of like this eating, sleeping, eating, pooping machine. And, um, but you know, I was, I was tall and thin and I, I could go on dates and I could um, play sports and I, I could do all the kind of things and I was fine. I was fine. But when I got a little older and I was 22, 23 years old and I was married and I was in graduate school and I was commuting two hours both ways to see patients and take classes. And then I would get home at, you know, eight o'clock at night and my, my wife would, God forbid, want to talk to me, um, ex-wife now, and not for that reason, but, right. <laughs> um, um, you know, I just didn't have the time to work out is the thing, but the food still had a hold on me. And so I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient thinking, when can I get my next pizza? Um, and if you know anything about psychology, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, you, there's a lot of training. You have to know a lot of stuff. In a lot of, a lot of ways, PhD school is harder than medical school. Um, but in the end, it's not like people come and hand you the jigsaw puzzle of, of their life and you rotate it around and say, oh, look, put this piece here. And they go, thanks, doc. I'll get right on that. Mm -hmm. It's more like you have to lend them your soul by being 100% present so that they'll eventually love and trust you enough to take that advice, to take this piece and work it over here. Your, your best friend can see where that piece goes, right? So I, I wasn't present and it really bothered me. And I felt like it was risky. Um, I never lost anybody, but I felt like it was risky. I was also working with um, 
couples right after they had an affair. I, I saw hundreds of couples like that. And only two of them ever got divorced. But still, I felt like I was not present. And that, that really bothered me because I come from a family where, um, you know, 17 psychotherapists and if something broke in the house and everybody knew how to ask it how it feels and nobody knew how to fix it. And, um, you know, a soulful psychological profession was what was always most important to me. Um, so coming from the family that I came from, I decided I must be a psychological cause. You know, to, to, in a nutshell, I thought there must be a hole in my heart. And if I could heal the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to heal the hole in my stomach. So I went to the best doctors you could imagine because my family knew them in and around New York City. I went to psychologists. I went to psychiatrists. I took medication. I delved into my past. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. I did all this spiritual stuff. And it was a deep and meaningful journey. I learned an awful lot about myself. But basically, my overeating would get a little better and then a lot worse, a little better and a lot worse, to the point that I, I mean, my top weight was about 280. My scale says about 210 this morning. But to the point where I was being yelled at by my doctors telling me that I was probably going to die by the time I was 30. I had triglycerides over 1,000. I had all these autoimmune problems, rosacea and, and eczema and Hashimoto's. I was just miserable. I was just miserable about all that, but I would get a little better and a lot worse, a little better and a lot worse. So eventually there were a couple of things that happened that flipped the paradigm for me, where I realized that it wasn't so much about loving myself then, but being the alpha dog in my own little, my own little wolf pack, uh, really taking control of this thing as if it was a wolf challenging me for leadership. What happened was, first of all, I was deeply immersed in the advertising and food industries. And I saw that they were engineering progressively more hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and salt. And they're all aimed at hitting the bliss point in the lizard brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is that every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag, box, or a container, there's some fat cat in a mustache and a white suit that's laughing all the way to the bank, right? They're, they're kind of stealing your survival draft. These are evolutionary buttons, and they're stealing your survival draft. Then I saw what the advertising industry was doing. They were very good at getting you to think that these concoctions were good for you. So for example, I remember I had a really good friend who worked for a food bar manufacturer, a very famous food bar manufacturer. And he was the VP. And as he was leaving the company, he said, I have to tell you the most profitable thing that we did was when we took the vitamins out of the bar. We realized the vitamins were expensive and they were making the bar taste bad. So we took the vitamins out of the bar and we put the money into the packaging instead. And we made the packaging um, multicolored and vibrant and shiny. And if you think about it, we're told to eat the rainbow. Are you a dietitian? Mm -hmm, I yeah. am. So do you tell people to eat the rainbow? This, yeah. Yes. Well, tell them Tell them why you do that. Because, because this is a every color gives a different nutrient. And if you eat all the colors, you're getting all the nutrients. So that so that's a that's an evolutionary button that we've developed. Our, as a matter of fact, our appreciation for color probably has something to do with the fact that it represented a diversity of nutrients in, in nature. So when you have a 
salad with dark green leafy lettuce and you know you could tell me specific nutrients but a dark green leafy lettuce and a yellow carrots and dark blueberries and um, red tomatoes it, it's it's an evolutionary trigger that says that's where the good stuff is we need that that's where the good stuff is and if you I, I imagine when your clients start eating like that that they have less cravings because they're they're physiologically taking care of themselves right mm-hmm. I know part of part of my recovery was focusing more on getting a diversity of micronutrients from natural natural foods um, and in particular, I got over eating chocolate by um, having kale banana smoothies. I'm always curious mm. why that might have been, but okay. <laughs> no, I love where you're going with this. Thank you. This is so awesome. So, so I saw that and I, and I said to myself, well, wait a minute. This has nothing to do with my childhood upbringing. It has nothing to do with a hole in my heart. It doesn't matter if my mama loved me enough or not. These are, um, these are billions of dollars being poured into stealing my survival drive. It's an outside force. And I'm going to need some kind of a good defensive gap. Then I saw that the part of their brain that they're targeting, um, it's like the seat of feast and famine, the seat of um, the seat of the emergency response, fight, flight, freeze. It's really the reptilian brain, the, the brainstem. And I'm just using my fist to represent that. And when the reptilian brain sees something in the environment, it plays a kind of like a bad college drinking game. It says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it or do I kill it? There's no love there. It's eat, mate, or kill, right? It's the mammalian brain, which whether you believe God put it there or that it was evolved on top of that, it has the ability to inhibit the reptilian brain and says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on the people that I love, my tribe members, my, you know, my family? What impact will it have? That's where love starts to come in. And then the neocortex is on top of that and says, wait a minute, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, what impact will that have on your longer term goals, on the kind of person you're trying to be in society, on your contribution, on your spirituality, or your music, your art, your other relationships, your, your writing, your contribution to the world, um, and your long term goals like health and fitness. Mm-hmm. And I said, so all these years, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm assuming, and this went on for decades before I figured this out. All these years, I'm assuming that I need to love myself more at the moment of impulse. But what's actually happening at the moment of impulse is the part of my brain that doesn't care about love is being overactivated. So that's interesting. So I did one last thing that really taught me to flip this paradigm. I said, um, I'm getting paid all this money to do these studies. I'm going to do one for myself. And in those days, this was like 1999, internet clicks were cheap. And so I set up a long-term study over the course of three or four years where I intercepted people when they were searching for solutions to stress, work stress, home stress, um, all kinds of different kinds of stress. And I would then ask them, what types of food do you have trouble, you can't stop eating when you feel stressed? And I found three interesting things. People who always went to chocolate first, like me, they tended to be lonely, brokenhearted, or a little depressed. People who went to crunchy, salty things, they tended to be stressed at work. And people who went to soft, chewy, starchy things, they tended to be stressed at home. And I thought, that's really interesting. Maybe I can make something out of that. So I went and I talked to my mom, who is not only my mom, but is also a psychotherapist and a chocoholic. And I said, Mom, I think we figured something out. I just need to know more about my story. Yes, I'm 
not really happy with the marriage and I'm kind of lonely and depressed, but what happened that when I have those feelings, I want to go to chocolate? How did that pattern get set up? And she gets this horrible look on her face. She's just, I'm so sorry, honey. I said, said, mom, mom, it's okay. You know, this was, this was decades ago. I love you. I'm just trying to figure this out. It's research. (laughs) It's research. Yeah. She says, she says, honey, when you were one year old in 1965, your father, my husband was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And I was terrified because not only were you a little toddler, but we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. And I thought I'm going to be an army widow with two little kids all by myself. And I didn't want to lose your dad. And so I was terrified. At the same time, your grandfather, my father, had just gone to prison. And I didn't know. He disappeared for a while. And I had always idolized him. I had no idea he was doing these things. And he was guilty. He actually did it. And my world was devastated. And so I was sitting, feeling depressed and anxious, basically staring at the walls. And you'd come running to me, asking to be played with or hugged. And you'd, you'd want love. You'd want to be played with. You'd want healthy food. And I didn't have the wherewithal to give it to you because I was sitting anxious and depressed, staring at the walls. So I put a refrigerator on the floor. And I put a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup in the refrigerator. And I'd say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator and you'd open it up and you'd suck on the bottle and you go into a chocolate sugar coma. You would think, wow, this is like a movie moment. Like, like mom and I should have had this big cry and a big hug and forgiven each other. And then I would never have trouble with chocolate again, right? What actually happened, I mean, it was, it was a good conversation and we were over Skype and I said, you know, I love you, mom. And I, I learned a lot more about her. I asked her questions about that time in her life. And, and the result was psychologically that I didn't hate myself as much. I could kind of forgive myself. So it did help in some way, but my chocolate eating got worse. And this was, this was really pivotal for me. So my chocolate eating got worse. And the reason it got worse was there was this voice of justification in my head. And I went something like, you know what, Glenn, you're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can get out of this marriage and find the love of our life, we're going to have to be filling up on chocolate. Let's go get more right now. Yippee. Right? I said, that's really, really interesting. And at that point, I said to myself, maybe the point is not to put out the fire, but to build a better fireplace. And maybe this voice of justification is poking holes in the fireplace. And if you think about it, a fire, an emotion, um, a fire is an asset, not a liability, if you have a well-contained fireplace. A a roaring fire in your living room that is well-contained becomes the center of hearth and home. People gather around, they tell memories, they cry, they laugh, they, 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 they make stories, they make memories and they tell stories. It becomes the center of hearth and home, it's an asset. So, I came up with this crazy idea. I had also read a book by Jack Trimpey called Rational Recovery. And he was doing something with alcoholics where he, he pointed out, he's one of the first people that I knew in the addiction field that pointed out that um, it's not about loving yourself and it's not about an incurable, progressive, mysterious disease. It's really about taking control of that lizard brain. So I said, okay, first of all, there are other biological functions that I control. It can be very powerful biological functions. I might have to pee like a racehorse right now, but I'm going to finish this interview anyway. I will tell my bladder, you know what? I hear you. I'm, um, I, I'm going to take care of that authentic need, but not until after I'm done talking to Lindsay, right? Not, not, not until after I'm done with that. 
Um, there could be a very pretty woman walking down the street. I'm not going to run outside and kiss her. There are ways and and uh, you know customs for approaching people. There are very powerful biological urges. So this is just one more biological urge. Why can't I control myself the way that I control myself? So I said, well, I have to be able to recognize it when it pops up. The only way I'm going to do that is if I have a very clear set of rules that define healthy versus unhealthy behavior. So I started with one simple rule, which was I will never have chocolate on a weekday again. I could have it on a Saturday or Sunday, but I'm just not going to have chocolate on a weekday. And I wanted to see if I could recognize this thing when it came up. And then if I, this is a little embarrassing because I'm, I'm a sophisticated psychologist. I've, you know, I've got millions of readers and I've been in all these different major periodicals and on TV and everything. But the way that I recovered from overeating was that I decided that I had an inner pig. I was going to call my reptilian brain my inner pig. I wish I called it a food monster. I wish I didn't call it a pig. I was not going to publish this. My idea was not to be famous back then. My idea was that I just wanted to solve this for myself. So it's a very yeah. private thing. So I said, I've got an, a pig inside me and that pig squeals for pig slop. Chocolate is pig slop on a, on a Wednesday. So if I'm in Starbucks and there's a chocolate bar at the counter and I'm thinking about it and I hear a voice in my head that says, you know, Glenn, you worked out hard enough today. I, I know it's Wednesday, but you're not going to gain any weight if you have a little bit of chocolate. Go ahead, let's go have it. Yippee. Um, and it'll be just as easy to start, start again tomorrow. If I hear that voice, I say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my pig. My pig is squealing for slop. Chocolate is pig slop on a Wednesday. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And as ridiculous as that sounds, it would give me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to make the right decision if I wanted to. It would wake me up and I could start to make the right decision. It wasn't a miracle. I didn't suddenly make no mistakes whatsoever. What, what was a miracle was that I no longer felt befuddled and confused. I no longer felt powerless. I no longer felt helpless. I said, wait a minute, I can wake up and make the right decision. And so then it was a matter of um, figuring out how the pig was lying to me. I always say that a pig squeal has a half a truth and a bigger lie. So for mm -hmm. example, if it says, if it says it's just as easy to start tomorrow, you can have the chocolate today because you worked out and you won't gain weight. Well, first of all, if I only had, you know, a half a bar, then I wouldn't gain weight. But normally if I would have chocolate, I'd have six bars and then a whole pizza to, to wash it down. Um, secondly, by the principle of neuroplasticity, which says if you have a craving and you reinforce that craving by eating the chocolate, that connection is going to get stronger. So you're going to have a stronger craving tomorrow. It's going to be harder to start tomorrow, not just as easy. Um, therefore, if you're in a hole, stop digging, always use the present moment to be healthy. I could disempower the irrational thinking that was greasing the chute between the impulse and the action. And so the next eight years was a matter of keeping a diary where I looked at the very specific false logic that was greasing the chutes. And I developed methods for, for stepping out of the lizard brain. It turns out the lizard brain is an activation of our sympathetic nervous system. The reason we have sayings like just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt is because when you have that urge to overeat, you are experiencing a survival drive gone wrong. It really believes that this is necessary for your survival. And there's a concomitant excitation in the body, prepare, preparation for an emergency. 
And so I would do things like take what Laurie Hammond calls a 7-11 breath. If you breathe in for a count of seven and breathe out for a count of 11, and you repeat that several times, it's going to activate your parasympathetic nervous system, the part that calms you down and says, there is no emergency. This is time to rest and digest and think. Because think about it, if you were being chased by a hungry bear, you would not have time to breathe out for longer than you breathe in. So mm-hmm. there are techniques like that would slow you down. I would, um, after I would take that breath, I would write down specifically what the pig was saying. So carry around something to write with. And, and when you write, you're engaging the upper brain. Writing is not an emergency reflexive response. It's something we learn later on um, via our cognitive functioning and education. So you're taking yourself out of the reptilian brain when you write. So even if you don't know how to disempower the logic, just the act of writing it down takes you out of that reptilian brain. Um, And then I would adjust the rules to be something that I could live with. So I said, look, there's no point in breaking my own rules. Why don't I at least prove to myself that I'm completely in control? What if recognizing and ignoring or disempowering the pig was the most important thing in the struggle. And then the rest of it was just adjusting my rules and my food plan. So I accomplished the weight loss that I wanted to. And slowly but surely, I came to sets of rules that um, that were easy to follow, where I felt like a winner. I started to feel like, like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not this thing's slave, I'm its master. It really is a biological organ inside of me. It, it has nothing to do with what my mom did or that I was in a bad marriage or anything like that. And um, over eight years, I kept the diary and I never thought I was going to do anything with it. And then um, over the course of my life, I've had a dual career and I had a clinical practice and I had a, a consulting practice. And through my dealings in business, I wound up as a minor partner in a publishing company. And as I was getting divorced, I was talking to the CEO and he said that we needed to publish a book that we could do a bunch of marketing experiments with because we had to be able to attract better authors and show that we were capable of making something really successful. And I said, well, I'm getting divorced. I really need something to do because it's not clear what what I'm going to be doing. I told him about this diary that I kept about me versus my other pig. And he said, that sounds brilliant. Why don't you turn it into a book? And I said, you mean I'm going to be a sophisticated psychologist and you're going to make me famous. I'm going to go out there and talk about this pig inside me. And he says, yeah, that's what we're going to do. I spent a summer editing the journal into a kind of an allegory, kind of a book with some specific instructions about how to execute this. I sent it to him. Two weeks later, he calls me back and he says, Glenn, donuts are pig slop. I don't eat donuts. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And he proceeds to lose almost 100 pounds over the next 18 months. And over the course of that time, we publish the book. I get divorced. We start promoting it. And um, boom, it's, it's um, now we have more reviews than the Da Vinci Code. And it's um, and when I'm in a bookstore, sometimes people will come up to me and they don't really know my face. They don't really, don't really know my name, but they kind of point at me and they go, pig guy, pig guy. <laughs> <laughs> See, the, the pig part was supposed to be part of that, obviously. Uh, Whether obviously, or not you right? want it or not, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the oh, okay. Well, first of all, congratulations. Such a Thanks. cool story. And Thanks. I and now I need to chunk backwards here for a second because one thing I have a client and I who laugh about this because even the word rules, I feel like for a lot of my clients doesn't 
been well. Like, I feel like they feel like the second a rule comment comes out, then it's like diet mentality. We always say guidelines or something else. And my client and I, the why she laughs is she's like, you're just renaming it. You're just saying it's something different. But for a lot of people that feels better. So do you come up against that at all? Do you, with, with saying rules, oh, yeah. do you have to kind of work around that language? Well, I don't work around the language. I go head up against it. The research is actually more supportive in my estimation, of rules over guidelines. The reason for that is that willpower is a fatigable muscle. There are only so many good decisions you can make over the course of the day. So if you have a guideline that says, I'm just going to eat healthy 90% of the time and indulge myself 10% of the time. First of all, you don't know what eating healthy means and you don't know what indulging yourself really major. But in every situation of temptation, you have to burn more of your willpower to make the decision. Is this the 90%? Is this the 10%? What does that mean? So there's a lot more thinking involved and that burns up brain glucose. And there's a lot of research that suggests that willpower fatigues over the course of the day, the more decisions you make. It even has to do with non-food decisions. People have more trouble resisting marshmallows if you make them do math problems before you put them in front of them. So there's, there are all kinds of research about that. Whereas if I say I'll only ever have chocolate on a Saturday, um, or if, if you want to make a 10%, just like I'll only ever have chocolate on the last three days of the calendar month, all of your chocolate decisions are made for 90% of the month. It burns much less willpower. There is an approach out there that suggests that any restriction, even a mental restriction such as a rule, will cause a bench. That, in my estimation, is because, and it, it does help some people to um, eliminate all rules and only use guidelines. It does help some people. However, they'll come and complain to me that they're not eating as healthy as they want to eat. And the reason it works is because I believe that most binge eaters at some point in their life were fed against their best interest, like they were controlled against their best interest. And so it was actually in their survival interest to rebel and say, I don't trust authority. I'm not going to do what people tell me. So our first principle is I'm not going to give you your rules. You're going to make up your rules. This is a diet agnostic program. Uh, we respect autonomy at the highest level. When someone gives you a diet, then at some point your pig is going to say, well, their diet doesn't work. We're going to have to keep binging until we find another one, right? So, so um, we, do, we do highly recommend that people work with nutritionists and dietitians to get input, but ultimately they have to decide what are they going to follow? We're not going to tell them they have to do this. So I, I think that by saying we're not going to use, we're not going to use um, rules at all, then some people are able to overcome that rebelliousness and that works out for them. However, you're setting up a situation where you have to use willpower a lot more than you need to. You have to use mindfulness, uh, which is a wonderful thing. I'd I want people to eat mindfully, but we don't live in a world where you can be mindful all the time. Mm -hmm. And so you have to really focus on that. And then the third thing is that you're eliminating a feedback mechanism. Well, think of an archer aiming for the bullseye. They know exactly where the bullseye is. And when they miss it, they know by how much in what direction. So they know what, what adjustments to make. If you're just using a guideline, you're kind of fuzzying up the bullseye, and then you don't have that feedback, so you're, you're kind of eliminating the learning mechanism that helps you to, to hit the bullseye. So I say- so interesting, yeah. Right? Yeah. So let's, let's come up with a bullseye. Let's aim with perfection. You know, but before an Olympic archer loses the arrow, 
they can actually see the arrow going into the, the bullseye. They're not thinking, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't, progress, not perfection. They're aiming with perfection and they're, they're seeing the arrow go into the bullseye. When they miss it, and they take a step back and they don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic archer. I might as well shoot all the arrows up into the air. At least I hope they don't, they, the good ones don't. Um, they, they, um, they take it seriously. They use the feedback and they feel a little bit of upset when they, when they miss, but then they make the adjustments and they get up in the end with perfection again. So that's what I want. That's what I teach people to do. Um, so, and I realized I, I might've come across the saying that we, don't recommend dietitians on a dietitian show, but the, the opposite is actually true. Oh, no, no, no. I don't feel that way at all out of you. I feel like there's just always, and I know you believe this too, the wonderful pairing of all resources. When somebody is on a journey like this, it is at that moment, who, who, who do we need to pull in? I have another client who we talk about an accountability dream team, you know, and for, and sometimes it's psychologists, sometimes it's dietitian, personal trainer, physical therapist, chiropractor, yeah. like we are all teammates. And at any given moment, that's who we need to draw from. So no, I don't get that from you at all. And what is funny. <laughs> so I have a book out in the world called direction, not perfection, because again, I feel like my clientele really pushes back on this the perfection thing, it's like what you just said, shooting all the arrows up into the air is what I see happen when the when the bullseye isn't hit. And so it's trying to give that permission, shoot for excellence, you know, but like the perfection and never being able for them to hit perfect is it's the scale of what I see a lot out of clients when they get on that scale and it's not the number that they see and who, you know, you lose them and you lose them for until they can regain all that positive energy to start again. So I love this. I love the different ways of thinking of it. And yeah. No. Can, can, I, can I say a few things about that? Cause it's a, it's a key point in our, in our thinking. Yeah. Um, so first of all, that, self-castigating voice that deflates you after you've made a mistake is actually your inner food monster, reptilian brain or pig. It's angling to make you feel too weak to resist the next bench. This is a piercing insight. Most people think that if they're hard on themselves, then they are likely to resist the next bench. They're going to get better. But it's like what you want to do is think of it like the function of the physical pain that you feel when you accidentally touch a hot stove, right? If you accidentally touch a hot stove, you don't say, oh my God, I'm a pathetic hot stove toucher. Let me just burn my whole hand, <laughs> right? You feel the pain and you have to feel the pain because if you didn't have the ability to feel pain, you would just leave your hand down there and it would be awful. There are um, disorders in this world that people are born without the ability to feel pain and they don't live very long because they don't know where the sharp edges are. Mm -hmm. um, so you do need that pain for a second, but once you're alerted and you know that it's serious and you have to pay attention, then you want to analyze what went wrong. What are you going to do to be sure you don't hit the hot stove again, and then let it go. Any guilt or shame beyond that is, um, is, is self-destructive. And in our nomenclature, you know, with the never binge again approach, we say that any guilt or shame beyond the attention getting function, um, once you've analyzed and decided what to do about it, is just your pig trying to yell at you until you binge again. So that, that's the first thing. 
once you recognize that, this, this is a subtler point that you might have to listen to twice to really understand, you realize that there is an energy of perfectionism that you can harness for good or you could harness for evil. Most people have allowed their pig to harness it for evil saying, if you miss even a little bit, that means you're off track. That means we get to binge for the rest of the day. On the other hand, when you're aiming at the, tar at the target, they'll say, well, you should just aim with progress, not perfection. The problem with aiming uh, when you're committing to trying to hit a goal using progress, not perfection, is that it really just means I'm going to try for a little while until I don't feel like it anymore. So the, the psychology of winning actually reverses the way perfectionism is used in, used in most cases, when, when you recognize that there's this thing in, angling inside of you. Um, the psychology of perfection is to purge your mind of all the doubt and insecurity that you might not hit the goal, even if it's artificial. The Olympic archer has to let go of the maybe I will, maybe I won't, maybe it's going to make it. They have to harness all that energy into hitting the goal. But then when they miss, they need to forgive themselves with dignity. See, that's the opposite of what most people do. Most people, let me just finish the thought. Progress, not perfection, is the appropriate mindset after you've made a mistake and you need to recover. It's very difficult to keep binging if you refuse to stop going at yourself and if you collect evidence of success. I had five cupcakes instead of 15. How come? What did I do right? Right. right. I, I stopped the binge after two hours instead of 20 hours. How did I do that? Um, you develop a success identity if you ask, what did I do better and how can I do more of that? You develop a failure identity if you say, why can't I stop binging? You're just telling your brain to collect more evidence that you can't stop binging. So the key point is that to harness the energy of perfectionism correctly, we need to think of two separate situations, aiming at the target versus when you're recovering from a mistake. When you're aiming at the target, you commit with perfection and forgive yourself with dignity. What your pig wants you to do is aim, aim ambiguously with guidelines as opposed to rules and torture yourself if you make a mistake. Uh, so we're, we're, we're flipping that ideology and harnessing the energy of perfection rather than most people having observed the damage that perfectionism can do after a mistake is made, most people reject perfectionism entirely but when you talk to winners, they, they're aiming with perfection. So it's a, it's a different philosophy than most people expect, um, but it's very effective once you, once you get it. Yeah, no, thank you so much for walking us through that. It's, and it is, I can see listeners going back through and being like, okay, I'm taking notes. I'm going to listen the first time. I'm going to take notes the second time because there is, there's a lot of moving components in this and a lot to absorb, but it's such good stuff. Do you work with people individually still? Yeah. Yeah, well, we, we have a coaching program. We get about 100 people a month and um, I have a bunch of coaches that work with me. And then some people feel like they really wanna work with me directly. And so we have a program where they can do that um, in all, all different formats. So no, I do, I do. What is the best way to reach you? Is it your website? Give, give our listeners all your touch points. Well, well, it's all on the website. Go to neverbingeagain.com, click the big red button. If you click the big red button and sign up for the reader bonus list, I'll give you three things. First of all, I know this sounds weird in theory. You must be thinking, why does Lindsay have this doctor with a pig inside him on, on her show? Um, it sounds like it would be really harsh, but it's actually very 
uh, life-giving and enthusiasm-producing. So I recorded a bunch of full-length sessions so you could hear what it's like in practice, and you'll see people go from feeling very despairing and depressed and powerless to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and powerful. I want, I want you to see that. Um, I'll also give you a free copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format, so that those digital versions are free. Um, then we have regular versions if you really want to buy them. Um, and, um, and we'll give you a set of food plan starter templates, which are sets of rules you can modify for your own use, um, just so you can see, regardless of what dietary philosophy you're working with, whether you're, um, you're plant-based or ketogenic or macrobiotic or point counting or calorie counting, it doesn't matter. There are a set of rules that we can show you as an example of how people implement it. It's all at neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. Awesome. Okay. And I was noticing through a lot of your testimonials, people are just like, it was the smallest of changes that were really these aha moments for them. Can you give us some of those examples? Well, I tell people to start with one simple rule. Most people live by the dictum of the old nursery rhyme, which said, when she was good, she was very, very good. But when she was bad, she was hard. So most people are living on a diet and then overeat and diet and then overeat roller coaster. And so they're setting the bar too high when they're trying to be good. And then they kind of starve themselves and then they're, then they're too hungry and they can't maintain it. So we find people are most successful if they start with one simple rule, something you um, can and will do, which would have a big impact, but not really be a major change for you and not be too hard to implement. I'll always put my fork down between bites. Or I knew this guy who lost 150 pounds starting with, um, I'll never go back for seconds. He was a truck driver and he uh, ate fast food all day long. He said, I'm not going to stop eating fast food, but I won't go back for seconds. Or I'll never eat in front of a screen again. Or I will only have pretzels at Major League Baseball games. Um, anything that you could and would do. It, you can also add things. Some people don't want to give up anything. Um, but they just try to crowd out, and this is a success, successful strategy, they can crowd out their unhealthy eating with healthy eating. So I will always start my day with a 16-ounce green smoothie, no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Um, one simple rule, something you can and would do that is not too difficult, sets the bar kind of low so you can experience a win and get the momentum going in the right direction. I love it. Yes. Okay. So you seem like you're at a really good maintenance point in your journey. What are the key things that keep you flowing? Um, well, first of all, I, I couldn't work out for about seven months. So I actually need to lose 10 pounds again. So I, I like to stress that to people that I'm um, staying at your, you know, like staying at 12% body fat is just not feasible all the time for for everyone. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the juice ain't worth the squeeze, you know. Um, but what what keeps me on track are um, I read my food rules out loud in the morning. It takes 30 seconds. I feel really settled by that because then I know exactly what healthy and unhealthy eating is. I don't have to make decisions all day long. Um, I do start my days with a big green smoothie. Um, and I usually will prepare things for the day. Sometimes I'll prepare on Sunday and put it in Tupperware, but usually it's the morning I'll prepare for the day and I'll, I'll think through the different pieces and parts of my day. When am I going to have a chance to eat? I prioritize eating. I don't skip meals. Um, I work out every day. I journal. Um, and 
your pig will say you don't have time to do all that, but the truth is you don't have time not to because on average, it takes 24 to 48 hours to recover from an overeating episode. Um, think about sitting, sweating, bloated on the couch and think about how much more productive and present you feel on the days that you do eat well. So I always say if you put a half an hour a day into um, preparing to eat healthy and take care of yourself for the day, you'll probably get two or three hours of healthy, productive time back. So it's a false dichotomy to think you don't you don't have the time. The busier you are, the more you need to do this. Um, you know, and I have my my own coaches and my friends and my community and all the things that we psychologists like to make sure that people are doing to take care of themselves. So Yeah, so you have accountability that's consistent for you. Mm-hmm. You've got your non-negotiables that you remind yourself of every day and follow through on. So thank you. This It's just helpful for people to continue to hear. I love how you're saying we don't have time not to we'll figure it out. Right. Like, and that's what a coach can do. Uh, your psychologist, a group, a course, like those are, I, I think you might feel the same way, but because I get to talk on this every day, all day, it, it the motivation and the priority stays at the top of the list. Well, and yeah. Can, Cause you have to walk the walk. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I always feel like for the person who doesn't get to live in this land, it would be harder and we would need more people on our side reminding us that, hey, this is important. I want this at the top of my priority list. What am I not asking you, Glenn, that I should be asking? Um, some people get concerned that the level of discipline requires going to eliminate their freedom. And what I, what I want them to understand is that freedom sits on top of discipline, not opposed to it. Mm. So, so for example, the fact that the engineers who built your car are disciplined enough to make sure that when you turn your steering wheel to the right 30 degrees, if the wheels turn 30 degrees, they empower you to drive where you want to through the city. The fact that there are red lights and green lights and yield signs and stop signs and that you have the discipline to know what to do with each of those makes it safer for you to go further and expands your radius of locomotion. So you would not have the ability to enjoy your freedom with your car if it weren't for your discipline and the discipline of the engineers. Same thing with a jazz musician. Um, I wanted to be a jazz musician in my youth in addition to being a psychologist. I get very excited about this. (laughs) Um, we, We have to practice our skills religiously so that we can improvise away from them with emotion and spontaneity. We have to know what the structure of the music is to come back to in order to empower our freedom. If I'd never practiced my scales, I couldn't do the things that I can do in the piano. So so, um, a life of discipline is better than a life of regret. Discipline, every discipline you incorporate improves your freedom. It might take away something in the short run, um, but it greatly enhances your freedom in the long run. So when you, for example, um, I evolved to the point that I'll never have chocolate again. I just, I tried a bunch of different rules and they helped a little bit, but mostly in the end, for me personally, for, for most of my clients it's not like this, but for me personally, I had to be a never have chocolate again kind of person. Um, well, you might say, how could you possibly do that? You're giving up this delicious thing. Um, isn't it like orgasmically pleasurable? And, and what, why, would you, why would you do that? Um, and the thing is that you're not thinking about what you're giving up by continuing to have it. So Janine Roth, was, Janine Roth was the first person to point this out. 
by continuing to overeat on chocolate, I was giving up feeling free from cardiovascular worries because my triglycerides were really high and you know, there's diabetes and strokes and heart attacks up and down the line in my family. I was giving up being a tall, thin man who could hike mountains and spend time on top and you know, walk the walk as a leader. I was, um, I was giving up an emotional presence. I was feeling artificially revved up and I couldn't really be with the clients in the way that I really wanted to be or be with my, you know, be with my friends or, or anything else in the way that I wanted to be. I was giving up a tremendous amount that was worth so much more than the deprivation that I would feel from not having the chocolate. And the surprise to me I didn't know about was that if you're having chocolate every day, you're actually down-regulating your nervous system. Like when you sleep underneath the subway, uh, you become less sensitive to subway noise if you sleep underneath the subway because you have to. So when you move back out to the country, then suddenly you can hear the birds again after a couple of weeks. But when you're living underneath the subway, after two or three weeks, you don't even hear the subway or the birds. It's the same thing with sugar. If you're having a lot of sugar every day, you can't taste the natural sugars in, you know, lettuce and that that multicolored salad that we we talked about mm -hmm. um you don't you don't know how enjoyable fruits and vegetables are really going to be and you don't have to believe me about this you just have to try it so the surprise for me was that i was not really giving up pleasure i actually get more pleasure from food than i used to it's just that it's not the high like like chocolate's kind of a drug we're actually getting i mean for some people it's a lovely thing but i was getting high with chocolate and Fruits and vegetables don't make me high. They make me happy. They make me content. They make me feel gratified. I don't have unbearable cravings. Um, but I, I don't get high with food the way that I used to get, get with food. So there are a lot of nice surprises waiting for you when you let go of the things that you think you can't let go of. You have a beautiful way of explaining everything where it immediately takes down defenses and just by you saying the discipline goes on top of. That was so, thank you. So thank you. well done. Yes. Thank you. Thanks. You've been an absolute delight. We are so spoiled to have you today. I will put all of your links in the show notes so that people can reach out okay. and hopefully we get you back in the future. I'll be happy to come back anytime. Go click the big red button on neverbingeagain.com. Awesome. Thank you for joining me today. This topic served any purpose for you, or you can picture that exact person who needed this. I'm always honored when you share the episode. We are making 2022 the year that we are going to pour motivation and inspiration onto others. I also always appreciate it when you leave a review on iTunes and rate the podcast. I send you off with all the praise and momentum you deserve for staying open-minded to new information keeping that open mind to the idea that our journey will look different now, five years from now, slow and steady, y'all. It's not always instant gratification and not always that exciting, but a much gentler and redeeming path that will serve you well throughout all the years and every season of life. Cheers to health and happiness.